welcome to this very special episode of the New Food Podcast, which will also be available as a video too, so you can have a sneaky peek behind the backstage curtain. Today, we're going to be speaking about volatile supply chains and how this is having a knock-on impact on the quality and safety of our food. As we encounter harsher challenges, such as the changing climate conditions, broken supply chains and a cost of living crisis, the potential for food adulteration, fraud and even shortcuts to be taken is much higher. Let's take the war in Europe as an example with many manufacturers relying on imports of goods from not only the breadbasket country of Ukraine, as it's known across Europe, but also nearby regions, distributors are finding it difficult to transport goods. What this means is that companies are having to go elsewhere to source their ingredients. And as a result, we may find unscrupulous players in the chain substituting certain commodities, which could lead to unexpected allergies and even food safety concerns such as a higher risk of mycotoxins due to lower quality grains. Absolutely Beth, good afternoon. Um, that was a very very serious intro for us. <laughs> I know, um, it's like welcome and this is the doom and gloom, right? Um, regular listeners obviously will be, will be quite surprised, usually there's some good weather chat. Um, We've just spoken about hurricanes in the US, which I'm sure our guests will cover it to in a second. So we are absolutely not allowed to talk about gloom weather at all today. Yeah, um, we, we, we have the weather chat before we, we click the record we've button. We've done the weather chat straight into the nitty gritty content. That's what everyone's here for. Um, Beth, you're absolutely right. Um, really, really great points. And also, female budgets around the world just continue to get squeezed. Um, and manufacturers just don't have the luxury of raising prices to cope with increased production costs. That's something that we're hearing in the industry just an example inflation both the uk and the us i think we're at double digit levels now um certainly at record levels in the uk i think we did reach a peak in the us a couple of months ago this inflation has been combined with crippling energy price, price hikes high interest rates on the horizon high mortgage rates it's just bad news after bad news and just put shortly really price increases are just going to prompt alternative choices from consumers so manufacturers just have less room Forever. And that lack of wiggle room means that food and beverage manufacturers might, as, as you exactly just said, Beth, look elsewhere for cheaper ingredients, which again brings in some untrustworthy actors. Yeah. So if you're an honest food producer who wants to ensure that your products are safe and genuine, what can actually be done? And part of that answer lies in testing. Of course, there's lots of routes companies can take the testing. But today, what we're going to do is focus on one, and that is FTNIR technology. Um, and as usual, we've recruited an expert in this field, Cassandra Uzaitis Volta. How are you today, Cassandra? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for the introduction. And I really appreciate you guys having me here to discuss this today. So you heard us setting the scene earlier as we spoke about the drivers for food fraud and safety risk. Can you give our listeners your own insight on the trends you're seeing within the testing environment as a result of those challenges that we've mentioned and any other issues that you see coming to the fore? Right. And so when I take a step back and look at all that's going on across the board, I kind of think of it as an arch with two vertical supports. You have uncertainty and you have the automation processes um, across all the trends that we're seeing. And the latter being automation is largely attributed to all the labor shortages. And with that, there is the high cost of labor itself and all while navigating the uncertainty that comes with our supply chain issues. 
And in light of the issues that you previously mentioned, um, we're also looking to utilize alternative sources and suppliers, uh, which you did bring up, and as well as that alternative ingredients. And in doing so, we must maintain product quality and make the best use that we can of any inbound ingredients. So what are we essentially seeing? Well, on our end in particular, we're seeing an increase in the use of what we call inline instruments, and this is for real-time monitoring and an effort to optimize material use. However, uh, in general, I've seen many in the food and ag sector mention the use of near-infrared technology in dealing with uh, ingredient and thus feed formulation challenges. And this is an industry where bench shop instruments um, in the facilities and in the labs are actually widely used. And this is because we need to have the ability uh, to make quick decisions regarding the quality of ingredients, uh, namely those for energy and protein, as those are the most expensive components. And this is going to impact how we formulate. We're not only dealing with high ingredient prices and affordability uh, being a key issue, but it's also a matter of what's available to us. And that is shaping what we can use and what we must actually utilize. And the biggest impact that we've had from the war in Europe uh, is because Russia is a key porter, uh, exporter, sorry, of fertilizer and with its bans um, on exports to Europe and the higher input costs, along with all the global droughts, uh, driving up the cost of commodities. This decreases the overall supply of corn, which again, then increases the cost. And also Ukraine was once the largest supplier of corn to the European Union. And now we're exporting to the European Union uh, instead, further placing strain. And in addition to that, we actually have a competing market uh, with ethanol fuel uh, due to the energy initiatives at the White House. So roughly 40% of the corn crop in the US is being diverted to ethanol fuel. And wow. in addition, yeah, in addition to that, uh, due to the ethanol, um, the price of ethanol overseas, uh, much of this is being exported, again, depleting the U.S. supply. So thus, we have these two competing sources to our normal production. And so we have our cost for corn, which is one of the bases for animal diets. And I feel like I'm going to uh, reference animal diets quite frequently here, uh, <laughs> as that's what I focus in. But it's increasing, right? And in addition to that, every year the government allows us to plant a certain amount of tonnage of corn and farmer, farmers are subsidized not to plant. So given these circumstances, we've seen some customers not be able to get corn. And while these instances are sometimes related to supply, they're also related to transportation, to trucking. And that's where they're using contract haulers. So those haulers may be hauling for their own companies instead of using a contract hauler or allowing their trucks to be contract hauled for a smaller company. Thus, a lot of customers, uh, companies aren't even getting access to corn. And so from here, now what we're seeing is a higher use of alternative ingredients, such as bakery meal, uh, dry distillers grains, which is a co-product of bioethanol production. Um, but prices for DDGS are high still. Um, from a crude protein level, even more expensive than soybean meal. So we look to substitutes such as barley, sorghum, and wheat, uh, which are also limited. And just recently, we received news that Russia um, exited a grain agreement involving Ukraine. And so they're two of the largest exporters of wheats. Thus, wheat prices are now going up. Um, on top of that, just in general, grain shipping is being impacted, as we've seen by you know climate, um, the low Mississippi River levels. And on the other hand, uh, with that, you also mentioned, you know, now we have the issue of lower quality grains that have to be utilizing. And so there are openings for this now and facilities are in the position where they have to accept these ingredients because of the supply shortage. 
And there are ways to mitigate that in the feed industry. You can separate the ingredients out according to specific quality parameters and put them into certain diets. So if we think about an example of this, say a company wants to use the best corn and that's where their standard is. But right now, what it comes down to is do you want to feed corn or do you not? So some companies may be having to stretch their standards and food suppliers are going to be the ones to get the best corn as they're paying a premium for it. So there is no best corn available for feed. And that's where you're gonna have to do a lot more mitigation uh, for mycotoxins and so forth. And it may be the case that nutritionists don't wanna use alternative ingredients, but with the supply issues, again, they may have to. And this is where the advantage of turning an alternative ingredient into a highly valuable ingredient uh, through the use of nutritional profiles and having that knowledge readily available to you really comes into play. And you're right about the concerns with Russia filling out the grain. I think, luckily, I think they're now back in. Um, so the price of, of wheat and corn has since reduced. But as you say, it's such an unstable time at the moment, isn't it? And every, every bump in the road just seems to, to make the whole situation a whole lot worse. All right, listeners. OK, we're, we're going to dive into some of these bits because we realise this, this one is, you know, a bit, it is a bit sciencey. So, Cassandra... <laughs> we're going to we're talking about FTNIR so um that's near infrared technology isn't it um mm -hmm. so how can this how where did this fit in how can this address these challenges that we've you know spoken about for those that are unfamiliar with this tool set um explain in basic terms what what this is right so with either introducing or increasing the usage of alternative ingredients, uh, which in ag are typically highly variable products, this is really where the utilization of NIR comes into play and is like most advantageous. So FTNIR is its Fourier transform near infrared spectroscopy, and it provides a quick and effective solution for analyzing raw materials as well as finished food and feed products, such as complete feeds, which even outside the current climate is monumental to the cause. Um, of balancing cost and productivity because agricultural products again can widely differ in composition due to seasonal changes, fertilizer use, uh, transportation, uh, storage, and so forth. So the principle itself of FTNIR is really simple. It's a rapid analyzer that measures the absorption of near-infrared light of the sample at different wavelengths across the spectrum. And it's recording molecular vibrations of all molecules containing carbon hydrogen, nitrogen hydrogen, and oxygen hydrogen groups. And we like to think of the resultant spectrum as a molecular fingerprint of the sample. And within this molecular fingerprint exists a considerable amount of information about the molecular and physical structure of the sample. And that information can be accessed by multivariate data processing and evaluation methods to analyze the composition of the sample. So such that the concentrations of constituents such as protein, fat, moisture, carbohydrates, fibers, and even more specific parameters such as uh, fatty acid profiles and oils and fats, lactose in milk and dairy samples, and collagen in meat and meat products, all of these can be determined. And these determinations derive from calibrations that are established off of wet chemistry values. Therefore, uh, the value in FTNR is that it allows for the non-destructive and quick analysis of multiple components simultaneously in a single sample, whereas with the case with uh, classical 
wet analysis techniques, often each individual parameter requires a different means of analysis. Okay, so, let's take a let's take a yeah. break there for a moment. <laughs> Classic wet analysis techniques. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I'm in a chemistry lesson at the minute. So what is that? The periodic table in the background as well is superb. Yeah. It, like it's all adding to it. I mean, I feel like I'm back in class. This is so good. Featuring the like, tango. I, yeah, yeah, I've got amazing. my hand up. I've got my hand up. What, what, is, <laughs> what is classic wet analysis techniques? Tell us, tell us that, you know, so so we can draw up a comparison in our in our heads. Right. So uh, typically, whenever you want to know, um, you know, the protein, protein, uh, the moisture, the fat, et cetera, all these constituents, you will send these samples off to a lab. And there are different uh, laboratory techniques used to get the value. They have to go through different processes using different solvents and so forth. And this is not only costly and you have a lot of consumables, but it's time consuming. It can take hours to do a lot of these processes. We do need the data from that to build these calibrations, but essentially what FTNR does is it can reduce how often you have to do these wet chemical techniques and it saves you a lot of time and money. Okay, thank you very much. That was an excellent yeah. explanation. <laughs> okay, so um, we're, we're back to uh, NRI, so uh, and assuring the food supplies at its highest quality. Um, Let's let's carry let's carry on with the explanation. So the number one way that we can help assure that our food supplies are the highest quality is by testing our inbound ingredients on NIR. And by having that rapid analysis, you're able to make the decision from a food supplier standpoint to reject or to accept a load of ingredients. So in most cases, when it is rejected from a food facility, it's then going to go into the feed sector. And right. You can also carry out finished product testing to confirm that what you're sending out the door meets the guarantees and the specifications of that product. So we can take an ex like a specific example of dry distiller's grain, and that can range anywhere from 23 to 35% protein. So by utilizing NIR um, on site, you can adjust formulas so you can actually calculate what is going in, and in this case, protein-wise, for those alternative ingredients. Or let's say that you're wanting to test your inbound quality um, for oil for frying chips. You can do that rapidly via NIR, uh, but via wet chemistry that takes one to two hours. So it's difficult to be able to do inbound testing via wet chemistry methods alone in that scenario. And earlier I touched on, you know, the observed uptick in the usage of inline instruments uh, in order to address labor shortages while also maintaining product quality. And inline instruments allow us to monitor specific quality parameters in real time directly in the process. And that way you can optimize material use. If you can test things on arrival, you, you can reduce waste and ensure that in a world where there's, there's, there's less food around, less, less food, less food frame, or it's certainly more expensive, you mm -hmm. can reduce the chance of having to chuck out a whole, whole lower load of, it, say, frying oil, for example, um, because you're on top of it and you, you know what's happening every single delivery. Is that, is that correct? This is from someone that did history at university, not chemical science. So we have to explain it like I'm a five-year-old. Yes, yes, that is correct. And I think one of the big benefits too of inline instruments and measuring directly in the process is not only in this climate, but in a ideal world too, you'll have a multitude of suppliers and you can measure the quality 
that's coming in from each individual supplier because you have so much data coming your way that you can make decisions between how do I want to balance cost and product quality. So it's beneficial in that way too. Um, but yeah, it's it's it allows you also, you know, again, to optimize how you're using these materials. So if something isn't fit for the food sector, it can then be utilized elsewhere instead of just being thrown away. In terms of this technology, who is it aimed at? Who's using this? Right. So we always say go to your local grocery store, take a look at what's sitting on the shelves, and just about every single item you see is analyzed by NIR. Every single one of those companies uses it, and every single one of those products are analyzed on it. No so, way! That's yeah. crazy! <laughs> almost everything, almost everything. So internally in those companies, we market towards the quality assurance and quality control personnel, uh, production all the way through to engineers. So some facilities utilize benchtop instruments for analysis, while others are using uh, the inline instruments. And as we touched on earlier, there's a huge shift towards utilizing the inline monitoring for foods facilities post-COVID because of labor shortages and the need for higher process and variation control. And this is just, again, an effort to ensure the operations can run at optimal level and reduce variation throughout the manufacturing process. So these are largely the people that, and the personnel that we target, um, but nutritionists are also um, in the mix because again, going back to how you're gonna formulate your diets, um, you need to know what's coming in and what you're working with in order to know how to manipulate uh, those formulations. Okay, so now that we know how it determines quality and the audience, um, let's talk through the, the process. And I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna throw Josh under the bus here. Um, Josh, let's, let's do some role play. I wanna imagine that Josh <laughs> is, a, is a customer. Come on, Josh, get those acting skills out, assume the character. Yeah, this is sneaky because this wasn't mentioned beforehand, either, was it? <laughs> uh, which is we want to know. Um, and also, completely the wrong way around because Bethan is a very talented amateur dramatist. Um, I'm not. <laughs> so I think this has been poorly, poorly thought out, if I'm honest. But I will give it, I will give it a go. Okay, so Cassandra, I'm going to judge. <laughs> you, yeah, you can, you can write a review in um, what's like the theatre magazine, Bethan. There must be one. You can write a review in that, a scathing review oh, of my performance. There's there's loads, there's absolutely loads. This is we'll this is gonna follow you, Josh. Um I won't forget this one. Don't you worry. I won't I won't forget it. <laughs> Cassandra, I am extremely worried about product quality. And um, what do I need to, to supply you with? And and how does the whole process process work? Take me through it. Right. So in some markets, we offer fully calibrated instruments where all the calibration work has been done for you. And these pre-calibrated instruments are already used the day that instrument is actually installed. But in some cases, we may have to do additional calibration work for you. And what this means is that you start off by sending me 10 to 15 samples of your ingredient and its associated wet chemistry values. And we would then determine how it fits uh, our current calibrations that we have. And this is what we refer to as our validation process. And we then let the data lead us in constructing a game plan. So we work together to decide how many additional samples may be needed to support the product you're wanting to analyze. So it really is just a matter of where does that first step of data take us? And then we keep moving forward from there when it comes to the non-precalibrated uh, instruments. Josh, I'm stepping in here. I want more, in, more character. Come on. 
Well, right, okay. Well, if I just break yeah. the fourth wall for, for just a second, um, I'm sure that um, the character that I'm playing is an expert in their field and has got a much more scientific brain than I do. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that someone like me, who didn't do very well at maths in school, has to use this equipment. Is it complicated to use? And if, which is more than likely, I, Joshua Minchin, would not be able to use it, what support is there available? So it's absolutely not um, difficult to use at all. Uh, it's as easy to use as selecting a product, typing in any identifying information for that particular sample, or even barcode scanning an identifier, and then just simply pressing go. So the more difficult process is developing the calibrations, and that's something that we're fully staffed to assist you with. And Bruker's philosophy is that we provide application support to get your system up and running. The calibration services and application support are included uh, with the sale of the instrument, and we're always happy to support you throughout that process of owning and utilizing one of our instruments. And for the FAS market, that is myself. For someone that um, has to pay extra to get furniture assembled because I can't use a screwdriver, this sounds like this sounds excellent to me. I can't change light bulbs, Sandra, so um, this sounds ideal. Um, usually, I have to pay an extra twenty-five pounds to assemble my bookcases. Um, so this <laughs> instrument, the support sounds perfect. But as I say, the character that I'm playing, I'm sure, would be a lot more adept at using it than than, than I would. So, okay, we've set it all up. You're provided some amazing support. But what happens if my results come back with, with news that I wasn't expecting or bad news? What happens then? Right. So, well, you would look to your own quality program to determine what action may be needed. So if it's an inbound receiving, do you reject the load or do you accept the load and separate the product out according to its quality? And if it's an in-process or manufacturing sample, do you stop manufacturing um, or do you adjust? In essence, there are a variety of ways to react, but the advantage of NIR is that you can react immediately, which is of particular importance Like in our just-in-time world that's currently facing all this uncertainty. You're not dependent upon the wait times for classical wet chemistry analyses. So if we consider a relevant case, uh, for instance, last year's crop of soybean meal was particularly bad due to weather conditions. So we had several suppliers that were purchasing a 47% protein uh, soybean meal, yet receiving much lower than that. So in order to ensure that the formulations were correct, they'd put low protein soybean meal in one bin and high protein in another, and then adjusted their formulations accordingly. Oh, Bethan, sorry, you review my performance, then I'll ask an actual question. Uh, Go thank, thank you. I was going to review your performance. I think, Josh, that was terribly acted. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think you know, our point was put across. Cassandra, on the other hand, was was wonderful in that scenario. Um, so back back to you, Josh. Yeah, thanks. Now that you've com completed your hatchet job <laughs> for my acting, um, I can actually get back to the serious stuff. So that's, sorry, the point you just raised is really interesting. So let's say that that soybean crop comes in and it's of less protein. It's not a case anymore of having to chuck the whole load out and waste massive amounts of food. Once we're armed with the knowledge, we can, we can adapt our manufacturing processes to, to, to create a product. The quality is just as high, but we just know, we know, and therefore we can adapt. Is that, is that kind of the, the aim of the game? And a lot of, not to go down um, the track of uh, formulation, too deeply, but a lot of what I've been reading as of late with the issues we were having is the use of alternative protein sources, and they do differ from the widely used uh, soybean meal. But if you have that information on hand of the available protein, et cetera, 
you can then consider, okay, what can I add to the diet now to complement what I have to work with? Is that synthetic amino acids? Um, is there anything else that I can do? But now the nutritionist has that information on hand. So it's still able to be utilized. It's just, it changes how they're going to formulate those diets. This sounds like a really great system and a really important one as well. And bear in mind, everything that we spoke about at the top of the episode, um, various woes that are before us at the moment, that just that bad keeps on coming, but fingers crossed next year be different. With that in mind, is there anything else that this system can be used for? For example, let's just say that my lab is, is looking to do something very specific or you find an issue with the tech. Do you ever collaborate more with your with your customers to develop more bespoke solutions, especially customers that cannot assemble bookcases? Yes, absolutely. We're always excited to collaborate with you through any scenario at any point in your use of our instruments. So if you have a new situation arise um, at your facility within you know, five years down the line or even 10, uh, whether it's a new issue or uh, an application, we're always happy to work with you. And this isn't just exclusive uh, to nutritional solutions either. So we also use these products for process control. So if you have an issue with something in your process, uh, we also are able to help resolve some of these issues through the use of our technology. And we do have a rather different business model uh, in that all of our sales representatives are also technical. So we maintain those relationships with our customers through a lot of on-site support, simply through our sales process and maintenance process. We essentially just want you to get the most value out of your instrument as possible. So on top of being successful in your initial application, being able to add on additional applications to increase the value of your instrument is something we're just very much invested in. Absolutely. Um, this time of year, Cassandra, is really, really exciting for us, us journalists because we get to make some, some wild predictions about the future. Um, and then in 12 months time, we read them back and we have a good laugh. So me and Bethany are going to answer that process. I'm going to take Bethany's task of every trend prediction she made for 2022. And we're going to go through one by one and see who got, <laughs> got the best score. Um, I look forward to this week every year. In terms of those emerging trends, and we won't judge you as harshly, don't worry, we won't read you up in 12 months <laughs> and keep score. Do you foresee anything new coming our way that, that, that labs and producers should be particularly mindful of? So one of the upcoming trends um, that we've seen in Asia is the use of insect meals as a source of high protein and animal feeds, which is now spanning out as a result of the green energy initiatives as much as it is a result of supply shortages. And new ingredients and byproducts will come up to complement and perhaps well into the future replace the traditional corn and soybean meal that we see in animal diets. And insects are particularly viable as they possess a prominent amino acid profile. And most of the alternative protein sources that we see coming to the fore are also valuable because they're not just sub they're not subjected to the climate issues that conventional plant proteins are. And so we're seeing more inquiries about these alternative ingredients and are therefore turning our attention towards how to classify some of these ingredients and also um, understand the processing methods that go into creating them as we build solutions for their applications and animal feeds. And there is a lot to consider here because these are energy dense ingredients, these insect meals, and it depends on what the larva is grown on, um, when they're harvested, and again, what pre-processing methods are used for them. And while the use of insect meal has been authorized for use in poultry and swine diets, um, and it could aid in supporting the protein sources that are needed for animal feeds, it is expensive still. 
And as of now, these insect meals and larvae are largely being shuttled towards uh, the pet food and treat market. So I think that there's a lot that can be learned from how the pet food market utilizes these protein sources. And why is it that that it is expensive um, and that it is, you know, for for feed in in this particular sector? Is that is that the same for the pet sector, or have they managed to get prices down? I think it's just. A matter of they can outcompete. Um, so we are seeing the use of even in poultry, like there are the use of larvae and insect meals, but it's more so for treats. So high energy, high value treats for pheasants and um, exotic birds and so forth. I don't know if you've seen the little um, like meals you can give out to birds as treats or not. I, I can categorically say I have not. Please do divulge. <laughs> no, okay, well, we're, we're city dwellers. We don't, um, we don't feed many pheasants. You can walk into um, any. We we have tractor supply uh, is a big one that we have, and you can get specific uh, high protein, high energy um, treats for your chickens, for your pheasants, and it's just a good complement to uh, their diet but it's very expensive to be able to incorporate that into the diet and also how practical is it? Because since it's so energy dense, it almost need to be diluted down for its use in uh, poultry diets as a whole. Wow, so these are so these are chicken and, and turkey that are, are gonna be, uh, I'm sorry, chicken and turkey, gonna be used for food and they've been given treats. I, I think that's lovely, if that is the case, is it? That, <laughs> <laughs> it just it's, sounds it's pretty for, bizarre. It, it's for pets, so we don't give treats to the commercial um, poultry. I was going it, to say it's, it's for the, it's the it's for the pet market that it's been utilized right now. I think who's that... got pet turkeys? Who's got pet <laughs> pheasants? I don't, there's pheasants around. There's pheasants near us in our office. So there you go, Beth. Maybe we can get some some treats and <laughs> when, on our next drive to work, we'll see the pheasants dodging us, dodging our car, and we'll we'll, we'll throw some treats at the window. Um, <laughs> to ask because I was thinking no one has a pet turkey do people have maybe pet they do turkeys? is it big in the US Cassandra like pet pheasants pet turkeys I personally don't have pet turkeys um I have pet chickens and a lot of people will have other other poultry as pets yes we used it's... to have pet chickens in but growing up in southeast London they I think the most we used to have them in sets of four and I think the most they ever lasted for was a couple of months before the foxes dug under the fence and and, um, and dealt with them, shall we say. So no, not no, common to on. find in London. No, hold on, hold on. You had pet chickens, Josh. We did, we did. Free oh, range why eggs. why is did. this news to me? <laughs> I did. I love them very much until, like I said, the two months they were with us and then the foxes got in. Um, those of you that know, listeners that know London know that there are foxes everywhere. And um, yeah. they're looking yeah. chickens, they, uh, they won't turn that down. So they didn't go very well. But I'm, I'm hoping that your pet chickens um, are fair better. And again, some delicious treats. They're yeah, they're battle tested. They've been they've been through a lot, but they are very hardy birds, so they're, they're doing well. well this Fantastic. is lovely. This is, we've, <laughs> we've we've gone on such a journey with this podcast. Absolutely. But you know, I totally agree with you. I think the insect um, environment is just there's so much potential there when I when I hear about it. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we have digressed somewhat, but in terms of, you know, reducing 
that down and seeing it go more towards the feed sector what what is it that we we do need to do to to see that becoming a, a solution and you you mentioned you know um areas like africa asia uh, latin america um is this got any potential to stretch um further absolutely so it was actually um approved in the European Union and in the US for use yeah. in protein uh, as a protein source in poultry and swine diets. It just hasn't been utilized as of yet due to price being a huge issue. Um, and so I think it's something that people are keeping their eyes on, especially as we have a lot of sustainability um, initiatives coming to the fore. So the biggest takeaway I think is to, you know, keep in mind that consumers are also, you know, widening um, what they're wanting to eat and open to eating, but also considering the fact that we have to turn to these alternative sources because one of the biggest things on the floor and in the coming years, thinking long-term, being more proactive versus being reactive, is the use of these alternative protein sources and what is sustainable. And price is going to be an issue for the time being at least, but I, at this point, everything is costly. So we really have to think ahead on what is going to be useful um, and what is going to allow for great productivity, whether that's in poultry or in any food product that's being manufactured. Mm. I actually read a study on that topic earlier today. It just came into my inbox this morning. Um, Josh, I don't know if you saw this one. And it was saying that consumers are no longer opting for sustainable products as much because of the cost of living crisis um which is totally understandable but is worrying and you know it's it, the fact that everything is costing so much now that we we can't go for the more sustainable choice because the the price point is is far too high i mean i don't know what the solution is there i'm just throwing another problem really at, at this <laughs> but i thought it was an interesting um you know piece of research to to bring up but I think that's why they're sorry Cassandra the, the system that you've got which which can reduce food waste which after all is if it's not sustainability it, it starts the, the beginning middle and end is food waste I think food waste is what's that start weapon food waste is like the fourth biggest emitter if, if it was a country food waste would be like the fourth biggest emitter in the world it's, it's third 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 there you go yeah. ridiculous so if we can reduce food waste throughout the supply chain which obviously systems like this would help with it shouldn't be up to consumers to think in sustainable terms. The food they eat would be sustainable anyway, which I think is the goal. Um, worrying, but if we can make the whole supply chain more sustainable throughout, then we kind of take the choice away from consumers, which is what we want. They shouldn't have to be under that pressure. Now, I just wanted to c conclude here, and I think it's worth mentioning because we've got on to the, the topic of alternative proteins. Um, mm -hmm. I'm hearing more and more about cultured meat. Now, Cassandra, I don't know if this lies within your remit, but can we explore this a, a little bit more um, in terms of your expertise? You know, is that something that we're going to see happening more? I, I was at a um, at a, a in the metaverse, very bizarre, um, the other week, and they were saying that actually sales it was in the states predominantly for plant-based dipping. They are like plummeting at the moment. Um, and a lot of consumers that they had surveyed within this piece of research, I think it was MMR Research Worldwide that did the study, um, found out that 
a lot of people were more inclined to go for cultured meat. They were saying, I think that is the future. And that's even before, I mean, you know, widely it's available commercially. I know there's some places that, that we are seeing it. Um, but w- what's your thoughts on, on the cultured meat area as an alternative? Right. So this is something where I probably have even less insight that than you do since I largely work with poultry and swine and a little bit of bovine. And so I haven't seen any of that sector yet. Um, I just try to keep up with it and, and articles similarly, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I don't know how it's going to be different in terms of price, like the the bottom line, the effect on the consumer, like can they afford it? Um, I just, unfortunately, I don't have any insight on that. And I also don't know, you know, uh, the quality parameters and how things will have to be um, measured in those processes either. That's going to be interesting though, because that's something we're going to have to start thinking about if it does come to the fore. Mm-hmm. I think we've covered a, a lot of ground. So thank you so much, Cassandra, for coming on the show and, and speaking to us around this important topic and providing your your insight and also being honest as well, because that, you know, it's great just to hear um the unknowns as well as what you do know within this right. sector. Yeah, and all in all, I believe really the greatest takeaway is that while we need to take proactive measures, um, speaking about sustainability and considering these alternative protein sources and just being mindful of what's on the rise, um, I do think that the power with the NR technology is that it does allow us to be reactive, but allows us to be better informed. And so while you might not have the perfect ingredient at hand, and you might be in a situation where you have a limited amount of time, as long as you have that information and you can rely upon it, that is what's really imperative. Thank you, Cassandra. It's been an absolute pleasure. Josh, as always, co-hosting, absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for teaching me an awful lot about science today, Cassandra. I've left this podcast a lot smarter than I ended it, so thank you very much for your help. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Josh is going to be empowered. He's going to put some bookcases together now. Yeah, Yeah, using near-infrared. If that's what you got out of it, maybe we need to go back and and reassess. But hey, hey, hey. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for listening, for watching, and keep your eyes peeled for much more glorious new food content coming your way very soon. But for now, it is goodbye.